I'm Brad Henderson, and I am here with uh, screenwriter-director Mr. Simon Barrett. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. So, yeah, I just wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about Seance because, uh, one, I was very nervous watching it, um, mainly because we know each other, uh, you know, fairly well. And um, it, it felt seeing kind of the evolution of, of Seance and, and even like through uh, Twitter talking through the years of like how you said, you know, this movie's kind of like your answer. I figured it was because like the breakfast club was this. Mm-hmm. I was getting really excited to see what your next project was. So when it came out as seance and then I was hearing like nineties stuff, like talk about the nineties and I got really excited because I'm still a huge, huge fan of nineties horror. Uh, you know, of course, Gialli and plus just knowing that you're a film lover in general, um, I was excited to see it. So I'm very, very happy to, to talk the ins and outs of seance and kind of uh, get inside your head a little bit. Um, I guess my first question is why was this the first film for you chose to direct? Um, you know, I tried to direct previous films and, and nobody would uh, kind of entrust me with those projects. In fact, the first script I got, produced, and, and I've talked about this a few times now, uh, was the first script I wrote for myself to direct. It was called Dead Birds, and it was filmed in 2000, uh, 2003. Um, ultimately played at uh, the Toronto Film Festival in 2004, and uh, and that film was actually kind of a directly how I met Adam Wingard, just because we were both making horror movies in Alabama at the same time. And I'd written that as a low-budget thing, thinking I was going to shoot it myself on uh, kind of 16 millimeter. Um, kind of more along the lines of like i don't even know but more like more like trying to do like a dark night of the scarecrow um though obviously again with like a much lower budget um you know it was still gonna be a period piece but because it was a western i thought i could do shoot it in a certain way that would make it just kind of feel uh real to the era and and, you know i thought we could do it for about 60 grand and i ended up actually selling that script for 25 grand and the movie was made for 1.5 million um, and actually shot on 35 millimeter, uh, directed by Alex Turner and shot by Steve Yedlin. And I was just the screenwriter, but I hung out on set and kind of learned. And, and so I was always trying to find that project for myself. It's just, my career was never successful enough to really give me that opportunity. And, and I should also say like, it, it still isn't, I mean, I, seance took me about five years to get financed. The budget was ultimately about 2.5 million, um, which was cobbled together from, you know, Dark Castle Entertainment, Hanway Films, who'd uh, been involved with Your Next and The Guest and were therefore willing to kind of initially take a chance on me and, and, and put their names on the movie. And then uh, Ingenious came in to kind of really help bankroll the thing. So, um, but it was still, you know, that's, that's, so that's, you know, more money than we were able to get to make Your Next, of course, but, uh, you know, much less than we were <laughs> able to get for The Guest. So, you know, it's still like, I still had to basically, in other words, have a, a first project that looked like a safe financial proposition for financiers because the financiers of your next who also financed the guest um you know they went on to do like one night in miami and stuff they weren't really interested in working with adam and me anymore because uh, the guest lost them a bunch of money and they were kind of doing different projects then um and so you know it's not like i had like a ton of people knocking down my door to do my first directorial film after the guest and blair witch came out um, and your next, you know, was not initially perceived as success either. Kind of my biggest successes, I think, in the industry at that time were perceived as like the first two VHS films because they were so clearly profitable. 
Um, and so clearly seen by more people than <laughs> the filmmakers had originally expected. Um, you know, and, and so you could perceive them as, as, you know, kind of bigger than, than what they could have been. Um, so, yeah, so, so there did have to kind of be a commercial element to anything that I attached myself to as a director. So I did think that by staying in kind of a contained horror space, I, I would be well off. And because I love kind of murder mysteries and slashers and Gialli, you know, I knew that that was the story I wanted to tell. And I also knew that that was a story that didn't really interest Adam specifically, like, you know, he was going on to do Death Note and bigger projects. And so I also knew that this was a story, a type of film that I'd always personally wanted to make that I kind of knew was like really only of interest to me, um, which, you know, by the way, reading the reviews of Seance, I, I do think that's kind of turned out to be true again. You know, I set out to do a very specific thing and some people just are not interested in that thing or they are, I think, surprised that I just kind of sincerely wanted to do it as opposed to, you know, some tired subversion of it or, or, or whatever that would be. Um, you know, so I, I obviously wasn't trying to do a slasher parody in, you know, 2021 um, that I, I kind of somehow, the weird thing about slasher parodies is actually they somehow were happening like almost as soon as slasher movies themselves, as you well know. So, I mean, there's kind of not a new joke to, to tell there. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, so I wanted to make a certain very specific type of movie that I knew was kind of specific to my personality. And I think that's usually a, a good first approach as a director is something that you have a vision for that no one else really seems to necessarily like understand. Um, Cause then, uh, you know, cause then you really do have to make sure that you're the person getting it to the screen and, and through the editorial and post process. Um, Cause otherwise it's not going to make it out intact. Um, I'm, I'm really happy with like how dead birds turned out, for example, but that movie is very different than the way I'd envisioned it. And, you know, that is that is part of that and working with adam i was more directly creatively involved in those films so they were very close to what i really wanted them to be because i was involved in all the kind of creative decisions but you know it's still not it's still adam is ultimately doing 100 of the directing himself and i'm not really able to stretch those muscles unless he like, gives me like a b unit shot to do or something um which really isn't the same thing so so yeah, so a lot of lot of little factors, but but I mean, I admit one of them was just commercial viability. You know, if I if I had written um, any other type of film, I don't think I could have got it made. With uh, I, I hope that you understand this question. I I, I think you will. Um, stuff with like your next and the guest and seance. It it feels it feels like there's this smirk always like in the scripts where there's this very, very, very like dark humor, uh, almost like you're laughing when you're writing this. That's, that's how, that's what pours out of the screen for me. And especially in seance, because there's just so many like weird and, and funny moments in the movie. Uh, even just taking like that one scene where the girl walks in and says, fuck off. Like, it's just, it's just really just out there. And so, when you're writing these scripts, I like, are you, do you normally write, and especially I guess for seance, knowing that you're going direct, did you approach that any differently in your, in your writing technique? Uh, well, uh, yeah. So sorry, let me try to tie those, those two kind of things together. Um, Cause um, you know, the, the short answer is when in my actual writing, whether I'm writing for myself or for Adam Wingard. And at this point I don't really, write specs for other directors. Uh, it's 
it's either I think for a while going to be is that either Adam's directing it or I'm directing it. And I don't really write differently. I kind of think a script is a script. And, and, you know, it's not like when I write scripts for Adam, you know, I, I leave all these like camera notes out, but when I write a script for myself to direct, I'm constantly describing the camera work or something. No, I mean, I, I think a good script should, should be readable first and foremost. So even if I could put in like more personal idiosyncratic choices into a script that I know I, I'm, that's intended for myself to direct and see through all the way as a film, um, you know, I wouldn't because ultimately I want actors and producers and people to read the script and enjoy it. So my script writing uh, style tends to be pretty dry. I tend to not specify anything, uh, anything that I consider a directorial choice, even if I'm the one directing. That's just my personal preference. Um, and, and you can look up some of my scripts online and kind of see the way I like to write. Um, but uh, going back to kind of the the smirk of it all, if you will, I mean, I, I really think we try to make movies that are enjoyable kind of first and foremost, or at least, at least since a horrible boy to die and maybe VHS, um, you know, certainly that was the goal with your next, you know, but you know, it's not, um, certainly we're never like laughing at the material or, or at any notion of our viewers or the genre or, or anything itself. Like, I mean, some, you know, there's some kind of, you know, there's, there's certainly some elements of, I guess, satire in our work, but, but I, I, I don't really think we make like campy movies or parodic films in any way at all. I, I think our stories and characters, you know, are, are, we take them as seriously as any other filmmaker. Um, to me that like, it's just that you do want it to be really fun and enjoyable. And I think like, uh, I think Ben David Grabinski, our filmmaker pal, actually paid me a compliment once. I think he was, he saw the very first cut of the guest, you know, we asked him to, give notes on it. I, our producers are good friends with him uh, or our producers on that film. And they, you know, he kind of was like, you know, the best compliment I can pay is it looks like you guys are having so much fun making these movies. And I know you're not because <laughs> you complain about it all the time. And, and that's true. I, I don't have fun making a film because I'm really trying to get as, get as good as I possibly can. I mean, that's my commitment to the cast and crew and, and also to anyone willing to spend their money to watch it, you know, whether, whether people like Sans or not, it, it, you know, what they don't, if, if the deficiencies that they might perceive in that film are not a result of me, you know, goofing off at like, you know, the monitor and like, ha like, like having fun, you know, with the actors. Cause I'm absolutely never doing anything of that nature. I, I, I'm always extremely stressed out because again, your, your goal should be perfection. If you really care about the project and low budget filmmaking is nothing if not, the process of, of seeing like ideas kind of crumble under the weight of reality sometimes, you know, whatever those circumstances may be. So, so, you know, so there, there, you know, there's always, I think a sense of humor to my work, or at least, you know, in this kind of phase that I'm in right now, I even think a horrible way to die was intended by Adam and myself to be uh, uh, quite a bit more kind of darkly funny than, than people may have taken it as. Um, but you know, I, I, again, I think that's that's when working in genre. That's that's a specific thing. Um, you know, we have projects in the works that are very, very different, and so you know, I'll, I'll be I'll be interested how people perceive those tones. You know, because I'm not obviously just going to keep doing like the kind of seance thing. Well, I'm never going to do anything like seance again uh, because I think that should be every filmmaker's goal. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think it's it's while watching it. Um, you know, it's, it's very much, I, I've always had an example, uh, not example, but a way to describe a lot of these movies. And, and it's really like, uh, 
it's uh, party movies. <laughs> it's the easiest way to put it. It's where, you know, it feels like something you would watch in, you know, the late seventies, eighties, early nineties of having some friends over and, and, and watching these movies very much like kind of Kevin Tenney's movies uh, specifically, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of his films are just, it just very fun, you know, and it's, it's, it's not to the point where they're, you know, revolutionizing cinema or anything they're just they're 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 making their viewer have a good time and you're not bored i I think that's that should be the main goal for any filmmaker is just don't make a boring film it doesn't have to be inventive it doesn't have to be new it just just don't make it boring and i i I think that's something that you have uh accomplished to a great deal uh, through the films that you've you know written through the years um, where it just it's it's not boring and it, you don't waste any time and I think that's the important part well sure but 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 we also know that like critics like boring movies right if you, if you know if you're if you're kind of a critic and you see a film that's seemingly intentionally boring or you know like doing the slow burn thing or not trying to be entertaining then you're more inclined to give it the benefit of the doubt because you can see that it's not trying to be entertaining so maybe you kind of have to weigh its decisions, you know, and goals on an artistic level and and maybe, you know, you withhold judgment a little further. Whereas if a film is just purely trying to be fun in the kind of Kevin S. Tenney mold. And I, I you know, obviously I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of like, you know, I'm always trying to do unique and original things in my work, but, you know, but Kevin S. Tenney being a director who, you know, has influenced me a lot. And I, and I think, uh, you know, and specifically was a big influence on seance, uh, working in that, you know, specific type of, of genre film. Um, you know, when you're working with that, I, I think critics are less likely to give you the benefit of the doubt because, you know, it's, it's this kind of like, well, this clearly isn't art, therefore I can kind of dismiss it. Um, so, you know, so sometimes I think, um, Sometimes I think that's the wrong choice because, you know, there's much more <laughs> like, like boring, like, like I see movies that I find really, you know, slow paced to, to an extent that, you know, doesn't feel deliberate, but feels like an indulgence on the part of the creators. And, and I personally, as a viewer, start to perceive that and feel it. And, and I feel like it hurts the legacy of these films because it hurts their rewatchability. But in the moment, they might be perceived very well on like, you know, the festival circuit or, or whatnot. Because people's initial experience of them is like, okay, this is doing something different and ambitious, so I better not, you know, dismiss the fact that uh, that I wasn't exactly engaged. But the truth is, it's kind of a lot easier to make movies like that than movies with characters that engage you, and and movies that have a satisfying beginning, middle, and end. And again, I'm not saying I do that, but I think sometimes people dismiss the difficulty of of kind of narrative satisfaction and character-based immersion in these films and, and kind of treat that like, oh, that's the easier choice. Um, when actually being, when actually subverting that is, is quite easy, uh, you know? So, or, or, well, subverting that in a certain way is quite easy. Um, and again, I'm always trying to subvert certain things because you want to surprise viewers. You don't want, you want them to not know where you're headed. Um, but, you know, I, I do think, uh, I do think entertainment value, (laughs) um, at least in kind of the indie horror side of things, is something that critics are actually somewhat suspicious of, to be honest with you. Um, uh, You know, but that's that's that might just be my own personal, uh, you know, chip on my shoulder. Yeah, it's you know, I've I've been reading um, 
because I initially like seeing just like headlines of, of the film with the reviews coming out, they were very kind of like in the middle um, <laughs> or just, you know, knocking the movie. Um, and then upon watching, watching the movie, it was, it was something that, you know, it, it just feels like we kind of jump back to the whole thing of being, you know, boring or lazy. Um, there's a lot going on in seance. So that's why it kind of left me puzzled by kind of the more negative reviews, not maybe understanding or just even just the concept of everything that is in the movie. I mean, we have like a ghost boarding house. We have a, uh, the, like kind of the nineties slasher element. We have G, G, you know, Gialli, we have this like Gothic adjacent, like Canadian look uh, to these movies, like Black Christmas and and stuff like that. But we also have this weird, uh, and, it, and it's it's not off putting, but it, it feels like I'm reading like a like a, a a young adult or watching like a young adult like novel. Uh, yeah, come absolutely. Life, you know, and and so it's just, there's just so much going on that it's, it's, you know, it's almost a little offensive when I hear that it's lazy or just boring because I was like, there, there's, there's like, and also the fact that everybody in this movie feels like they're in a different movie. Like everybody seems like they're in a different film and, but it all comes together. It's, it's, it's not negative in, in any sense. It's just like Suki Waterhouse is in a completely different movie than some of the other, you know, some of the other girls. Uh, which is very inventive. And maybe if you could talk a little bit about that process um, and one, if I'm, you know, on the right track of all these different things coming together to make sale. Oh yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. No, look, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not too surprised by the negative reviews of seance, you know, I mean, last I checked, I think it's like a 47% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's like, well, you know, honestly, for the kind of film that it's trying to be, which, as you said, you know, it was this kind of slasher Nancy Drew giallo homage, but without doing the stylistic giallo homage thing, because I thought that would be too much of an anachronism. And plus, it's hard to beat like the strange color of your body's tears. Um, you know, it, it is a kind of film that, you know, it you critics are not going to give it the benefit of the doubt because it just is so sincerely being this like, kind of silly thing. Um, I'm not too worried about that. You know, I mean, again, you know, we made this thing in 22 days in the, the middle of the winter in Winnipeg and then COVID happened and I'm just thrilled it's coming out and, and it is the film that I wanted to make basically. And, and that, you know, there is a sense of atmosphere, you know, cause we, for example, we weren't able to find a school to shoot in, you know, the school that you see on screen is cobbled together from eight different locations. And, you know, like, like, you know, the dorm rooms are a build and a storage facility and stuff like that. So, you know, that was all very just technically challenging. So I'm just thrilled the movie coheres and, and is enjoyable to, to some people. I hope it kind of finds its audience on video like a, like a lot of my films seem to. But, you know, I, I don't, again, I'm not doing any more like this. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole idea was to kind of do a movie, do, but I think, I think almost what you describe where like every character feels like they're in their own genre, uh, is also the ingredient of a good murder mystery. I mean, I, I would even say that, like, that's certainly the kind of type of film that Ryan Johnson is emulating or a type of novel uh, with Knives Out, for example. Like, every character is a certain kind of archetype. 
Um, you know, with Seance, yeah, like I did want, I did certainly want Suki's character to be specifically having a different narrative experience than everyone else, um, which is clarified at the ending a bit more. But, you know, that is the fun of it. I, and, and, you know, I really just wanted to write basically fun, interesting characters that I thought, you know, I could get like cool, memorable performances for because that's so often what's missing from films of these nature, you know, dating back to the very first ones. Though, you know, I would argue, of course, that Halloween and Black Christmas, uh, the original, have great approaches to character. But, you know, but pretty quickly after that, I, it's hard to make the same argument about Friday the 13th. So pretty yeah. quickly after that, the whole like can characters as canon fodder criticism of like slasher or, uh, you know, murder mystery horror cinema, you know, became increasingly valid, I think, to, you know. And so, I you know, I knew I didn't specifically want to do that, but I did want a teeny bit of a body count, like like the numbers are being whittled down film um and and you know just because i enjoy those movies so i did just try to make each character a specific type and you know give them all just kind of different weird preferences um you know and give them each a different look and so on um but you know again we only had four weeks of prep so i was casting this movie so quickly that i was just like okay great like like i guess you're this character great okay like gonna do a quick rewrite and then we're good and you know something i have seen reviews point out is that you know, I mean, Suki's in her late 20s. And while you don't really know the age of the character, you know, she you don't really know her character's age in the film. You know, I thought I was kind of doing something that was a bit more, you know, a tradition in slasher cinema, which is having slightly older actors play kind of teenaged characters. Um, I, I, I thought that would make it actually kind of more fun and, and immersive as a film. But I've seen a lot of people flag that. And, and I, I'm just glad, I'm just grateful that my actors were kind of brave enough to go along with me making that choice, which of course kind of could, could have made them seem silly um, because that was kind of like a choice. I just was like, I it, like Scream did this and I liked it when Scream did it. So like, I'm going to do it, but you know, that's the kind of criticism where you're like, well, I don't know what to do about that. You know, yeah. I, 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 yeah, it's just a choice, you know, that I, oh, well. I, yeah. I think that adds charm because, you know, you could have something like we watch, you know, a lot of these 80s slashers and there's clearly these people are like in their late 30s playing early, like yeah. first year college students or high school students. But then you have something like, you know, My Bloody Valentine, which takes place in a town where everybody's an adult and there's no kids in that movie. But we're watching these people that obviously are between the ages of, you know, 30 and 40 years old working in the coal mines. But when you reflect back on my bloody Valentine, you never think, Oh, those were adults. We whole time. We think they're kids because they're doing kid shit. They're going to work and then trying to get a party going, you know, that the town shut down. So no, I always find it charming when there is those, uh, you know, no matter who your actor is, like whether they look very young or it's somebody, you know, in like final exam that looks, they all look like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're 40 year old people um so yeah it, it you know it, it, it's certain you know look i i never wanted to do like a stylistic homage to like anything you know because i i think if you're doing like a straight up stylistic imitation like some some films are very good at that and, and i guess i would probably say like the strange color of your body's tears which i've already alluded to as well as let the bullets fly are being kind of among my favorites um but but i just don't really know I don't really know why I would do that, you know, because because to me being just kind of strictly imitative, it, it, you know, is just not interesting, um, though, though, you know, though I know there's an audience for that. Um, 
but yeah, so it's it's tricky when you're finding like these ingredients to these films. You're like, do I recreate? Do I try to recreate the look of this, or do I try to kind of find like the new modern version? Um, you know, I tried to avoid a very video-y look with seance. Um, you know, by shooting 2K ProRes with these, you know, uh, rehoused anamorphic lenses, and and you know, that's the kind of thing that felt like I had to make kind of a choice about the look of the movie because we didn't have the time and resources to really, you know, light it the way that I, I totally would have loved to. And our DOP, Kareem Hussain, would have totally loved to. You know, so you realize at the end of the day that a lot of the creative choices made by your favorite films were just made out of like weird necessity. Um, you know, it's like, oh, we only had like two hours to get this scene and then we couldn't come back to this location. So we shot it like this. And you have to make these creative choices, which are always fun. And that is indie filmmaking and, you know, but, it, but like in the moment, you of course never know if you're making the right decision or like ruining the film to a certain extent. And, and, you know, I, I remember specifically on seance being like, okay, well, the good news is we can reshoot some of this if we really have to. And then there were zero reshoots on seance, like not even, not, not, not a single frame of that movie, you know, was, was outside of its 22 days of principal photography. And we had no overtime during those 22 days because we didn't have any budgeted. So it was tight. Um, and, and so, you know, so those, so you're making creative choices, you know, on the fly that you're like, maybe this isn't right, but I, I hope it is. And, you know, and then you kind of figure it out. So I don't know. I mean, that's the way all my favorite films are made. And I think that's probably the way even like the biggest budget films are made. But certainly on the low budget level, you kind of can see it and understand it a little more. In in films like Final Exam, you know, you're like, oh, you didn't have the resources to do this, so you did this instead. And that's kind of interesting. That led to you to make an original stylistic choice that maybe there's a better version of. So I guess that's what I'm kind of always trying to do is just kind of try to figure out like with what I have, like what's the most interesting way to do this um, that feels like kind of a continuation of the style of, of the type of film that I'm trying to work within, but, but also ideally isn't something I've specifically seen before. Cause if you're just like kind of recreating, you know, a, a scare from another movie, which, which films do all the time. Um, to me, I, I, I don't understand who you're doing that for. Like, are you doing it for people who know and recognize the scare and will like kind of be like, aha, like, like there's that, like there's that scare from that, from that John Carpenter or, Mario Bava film, you know, like this is, but then they're kind of taken out of the movie because they're remind, you're reminding them that it is a film or there's the audience that don't know what you're talking about. And they're, and they're just like, Oh, good scare, but you stole it. So, so, so like, I don't think that's good either. So I, I don't know why people do that so often. Um, personally, I, I think, I think a lot of filmmakers kind of exist in a bit of a bubble, like socially and, 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 tend to think that these notions and these references to other films and past filmmakers of interest to like their viewers. And, and I think that can be really self-indulgent because uh, I think ultimately you want your films to be seen by people who have like almost no idea, like seen and enjoyed by people who have almost no idea of what like the process of filmmaking even is. If you want to have any positive legacy or impact on culture. Yeah, no, I, I think the winking at the camera is 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 overdone, and that's something that I would congratulate Seance and and not doing, but feeling very familiar, but also being completely original. Because I mean, it was just like something like uh, it was the Prodigy that I saw a couple years ago, and they they completely lift that uh, scare off of uh, Shock from Shock, yeah, which which was done by like, cool another movie but, had done that. Oh, Edgar Wright had done that for like the Don't trailer. 
he'd, he'd also done the, the Mario Baba shock. So like, that's one, yeah. that's one, I guess when Nick McCarthy did that, that it was like, that's a specific like reference that scare. But I admit like, I, then I saw, I actually liked that film prodigy. No, uh, I like it. Movie. It was just, it, there, there's just, I don't much. know why he did that scare though. I, I, yeah, there's I, just too much winking. I was like, why did you do that? Like, yeah. There's, there's just, just too much winking in these movies. And, and that's something that I, I really, really, uh, I'm getting tired of um, is because everybody loves John Carpenter. So let's do a John Carpenter homage or, or, yep. you know, we all love Baba or Argento. Let's set up some green and, and, and red lights everywhere. That's, you know, not needed in this scene. Like wouldn't, they wouldn't normally organically be here. So let's just, yeah. So, and it's, it's, just, it's tiresome. It's like bad filmmakers think they can make their movie good, like The Shining, by just like referencing shots from The Shining. But like Stanley Kubrick had like the best crew in the world, and like like if you are not Stanley Kubrick, you really shouldn't be referencing Stanley Kubrick because it's not an imitation you really want to be conjuring yeah. to to people's brains. But I see that like all the time, and and I really do think it's just because there's some kind of like it's an empty signifier of quality, you know, it's, it's a stylistic affectation more often than not. And I, and I think it comes from a place of just kind of like not really knowing how to take inspiration from a good film. So they, so people take it very kind of directly. And, and I just don't understand who that's for. I understand that that appeals to a festival audience to a certain extent who, who are knowledgeable and recognize those references. And of course that's where a lot of critics are, you know, it, critics are in that space. So it can lead to kind of a good reaction within a small group. But if you want your movies to be received outside of like the choir, if you will, I, I really think referencing shots from other films is a tricky thing. Now, now Seance does contain shots from other movies, I should say, um, but not within the same genre. It's more like, like there's there's a shot that like, you know, I was referencing the Clarence Falk film Naked Killer um, in that he does a, uh, a like a rack with an extremely wide anamorphic lens in that movie. Um, even though actually I think the killer is a 185 to 1. So actually, I guess it's just a super wide angle spherical lens now that I say that out loud. Um, but anyway, he does it. He does it. He does these extremely um, weird, you know, like like focal shifts with wide with wide lens shots that look really intense and insane while like something in the foreground will be moving and then rack quickly to something in the background. So, you know, so that's the kind of thing I knew I wanted to shoot a shot that way. And I couldn't think of a way to do that without referencing Naked Killer and our conversation with Kareem Hussein. But I don't think anyone would ever look at that shot in seance and be like, oh, that's the Naked Killer shot. Um, no. There's also no. a shot that's basically lifted from Shaolin Soccer. Um, but, but again, Shaolin Soccer is such a different film contextually than Seance. I, I right. don't think, I don't think it's imitative so much as I'm like trying to figure out how to do something similar, um, and, and learn from, you know, great directors like Clarence Falk and Stephen Chow, who I think are much more interesting to study than, than a lot of directors that are referenced by, not to say that John Carpenter and Stanley Kubrick shouldn't be studied endlessly, um, but at a certain point, like, I feel, I would think that I would feel arrogant putting like a a framing homage to like Halloween or the thing or the shining and sands. I'd be like, like, who do I think I am? You know? Yeah, no, I get it. And then also like, it's just something and and this may tie into, so it, it was uh, one of the, the very, very first, when the movie starts, and I think it's honestly the first shot 
Um, you know, cause it's obviously you have this, uh, I imagine you picked, uh, Canada and Winnipeg mainly for the mm-hmm. architecture. Um, yeah. but like even the opening shot with, uh, you know, the school and the snow falling, I mean, that felt like a lost shot from black Christmas, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah it's I mean, not that, a, and it's not a homage to black Christmas. It's nothing to reference black Christmas, but it has like, you know, Bob Clark was able to shoot, like he shoots that film in such an incredible way um, that it's, it, it looks so grimy and so crisp and clean. And then looks like a soap opera sometimes a kind of a fever dreamish, but anyways, like, it's like, that's, that's kind of, that's what I look for. I want to, I want to catch stuff like on a third or fourth watch, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that, you know, I want to see, like, I, I hate blatant references. The only person that can do that and semi gets away with it is Tarantino. Oh yeah. It doesn't even feel like he's stealing in a way or, or lifting. He's kind of creating his own thing. I mean, yes, he does that from time to time, but it's, it's, it's just a a different, it's creative filmmaking. And like you said, it's being inspired by what you like creating your own thing. And I think that's what a lot of filmmakers miss. Yeah. And Tarantino puts it right in his titles, you know, Django Unchained, Inglorious Bastards, The Hateful Eight, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He tells you what he's essentially referencing, yeah, and and where and, and where the 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 cultural inspiration has come from for him, and then he uses that to create something new and original. You know, sure, you can say like Reservoir Dogs was inspired by City on Fire, but it's really hard to watch those movies back to back and be like, oh, Tarantino did nothing here. They're completely different films. Like, yes, they have like similar elements and so on, you know, and, and, and I think that's, you know, not to like my, I think my own approach is very different, but I think something that like I also do is I do take reference very indirectly, like an idea leads to another idea, which leads to another idea. And usually that initial German idea is I see something that I don't like in a film, which I think Tarantino also watches a lot of like insane trash, of course. He's, he seems like he's an encyclopedia of it as well as like true lost classics and as you know, those can kind of sometimes be one and the same, and there's a lot of overlap. Um, so, you know, so I think he also is probably a person who takes inspiration from like movies that are making kind of crazy decisions that didn't quite work, but then you kind of see maybe the better version of that, especially if you're a Tarantino and you can get the best actors in the world and a hundred day shooting schedule and such, you know, you can make a lot of crazy choices really work uh, quite beautifully. And, and he, and he often does. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, anyway, I, I kind of, I kind of got off the rails there with that one, but yeah, I mean, like, like, you know, with Seance, you know, Seance was originally kind of supposed to take place more at Halloween, more in the autumn because our financing fell through so many times it it kept getting pushed. Well, it got pushed years. And then ultimately we had to film right before the end, the end of the year. Like that's why everything was so rushed was because our money base would go away if we went into January at all. So, you know, the advantage of that is it's authentically cold. <laughs> like, that's just a house you're looking at in Seance. The house that we were driving by and saw was vacant. So I was able to call the realtor, or I had our locations uh, manager call the realtor and, and would get us permission to shoot uh, around that exterior. But obviously, none of the interiors in the film are, are within that building that you see. But, like, you know, that really came about because it started snowing. And I was just like, Kareem, if it keeps snowing like this, we got to just, like, get out there, lay down some dolly tracks. And just like, as soon as we're done with this scene, we just got to get every shot we can of snow falling. Um, cause, cause we're going to want that to create the atmosphere in the setting and, and to establish the snowy look of this film. Cause the weather at that time was unpredictable. 
Um, and, and in Winnipeg, kind of the issue that you have is it actually gets so cold that it basically stops snowing. So like the main snow you'll kind of have is, is October, November, really. After that, there's kind of not as much precipitation because it's just so below, it's just below zero all the time. Um, so our snow was actually kind of going away uh, in a weird way, though, though, you know, there was more coming. So it was always very tough to, to manage that continuity. But I also knew that if I could get the movie to have a snowy cold look, it would feel authentically interesting and, and make the setting and, and kind of reality of the film more palpable. So, that, you know, that's something that I, that's something that, you know, is, is just the kind of thing that is much more challenging on a low budget <laughs> than, than you realize, but, but I, I think it worked out. And, and, you know, it is one of those things where trying to tie all those things together. So you have a consistent feeling of what the world is, um, you know, you have to cheat it in a bunch of little ways, but, but that's, I think, and I think studying kind of exploitation cinema and low budget cinema is, is the best way to kind of understand how to do that. Cause you can kind of see people fail um, and understand what they were going for and kind of also be in your brain, like, okay, like what did they need there to make that work? And like, how could I make that happen? <laughs> um, yeah. With uh, you said now the interiors of the dorm rooms were were uh, uh, built uh, built sets. Um, that's the one thing that I in, enjoyed in the film, and I want to know if it's uh, intentional. Is that the dorm rooms for the girls are pretty bland, but it very much resembles your eighties. 80s dorm rooms and in, in, in colleges and even uh, kids rooms where they just have like this huge white wall, like with one or two posters on it. Um, because other parts of the film are grand and beautiful, uh, dark and mysterious. Uh, obviously Kareem is, is a, a fantastic uh, cinematographer and has been for many, many years. So it's just, it, it, it felt like it belonged, but uh, can you, discuss that at all like the set dressings yeah yeah i mean i i just wanted them to look like real dorm rooms honestly yeah. uh I, I feel like dorm rooms in hollywood movies always look like you know like million dollar in new york loft apartments or something yeah because people want them to look good but the reality is even in like you know the most beautiful campuses in the world the dorm rooms are still basically shitty and there's always some like urban legend on campus that they were designed by like someone who only otherwise designed prisons, you know, and stuff like that. Like, because they are depressing, like, like just kind of population control spaces. I never went to obviously a private boarding school. I, I was a public school kid, but I did, uh, I did live in the dorms for a short period in college. And I just remember like, it, they just sucked, you know, everyone hated it, you know, but yeah, it, it's it very is awesome. obviously, you know, a lot of people's first kind of freedom away from living at home. Yeah, so I just wanted to kind of capture that. We So there's only one, you know, the way we did seance, we couldn't find a bathroom to shoot in. So the bathroom is a build and a storage facility. And, and then we built one dorm room. And then we would shift things around to switch it from one girl's dorm room to the other. So somewhat of your, what you're feeling there is the reality of that. Like we had to have, you know, there's a pipe that we're moving. We're, we're moving the windows and the walls and shifting them around. So they have different layouts, but you're always seeing the same room. It's just been redressed, whether it's like Alice's room or Bethany's room, or Camille's room, or Helena's room. We're just quickly redressing it. Lenora's room, um, Carrie's room. <laughs> it's all the same room. Um, so somewhat of that is just things that could be done cheaply. But I also did want to adhere to the rules 
of what like dorm rooms are and like what you, I mean, I remember there were rules about like, we couldn't use like thumbtacks on the walls. So you had to use that like chewing gum style, like gooey paste that like, you know, leaked in oil into your posters in all four corners. So they would always have like stains on them for the rest of your life. You know, that was the, that was the rule at my, at uh, Ithaca college when I, when I was there, um, you know, maybe that's changed. I think technology's improved somewhat, but yeah, I just wanted the reality of that. You know, I, I felt like, like, um, you know, it, it, they are a bit sparse and, and, you know, and, and that is just the reality of, of, the quickness of shooting our production designer, Marlena or uh, Mars Fihiri, I thought did an amazing job. And, and we used like, you know, I used like a Charlie white video as like specific reference for like Bethany's dorm room and stuff. Cause I did want them to really quickly try to like evoke the personality of, the per- of whoever lived there, but I didn't, you know, but I also wanted them to feel slightly realistic to girls that are just like kind of uh, not really able to make the space 100% their own. Um, you know, there aren't locks on the doors in a lot of these schools. Um, the one, one thing the film does that um, slightly feels weird, but uh, I was, t- uh, it was actually um, Jason Blum at one point told me when we were talking about boarding school horror, he, he had gone to boarding school and he said something that movies always get wrong is that the students won't knock on each other's doors usually, because that's how you know, that's the only way to tell you that it's a teacher or staff. So the students will just like open the door or just say each other's name. So, you know, if you get a knock to like hide your shit, um, like, uh, cause there's no locks on the doors in these places. So I, that was something that I did in the film is, is no one ever really knocks, uh, you know, ex- unless it's a, unless it's a teacher faculty and the movie doesn't call attention to that. It just felt like they would have their own rules for how to smoke weed, how to sneak out and see their significant others you know, like, like any kind of culture, you know, you'd have like these rules that you don't want to bother to explain to the audience. So I just tried to make that feel real. I, you know, I, I think, I think Marlena did an awesome job, like making this movie look the way it, it does. Um, and yeah. And, and, and I think really like the only mission that I wanted with our dorm rooms is that I wanted them to feel authentically like dorm rooms, like uh, even to the point where I think if you really pay attention Suki is a little too long for her bed. Um, like you can tell, she doesn't. Yeah, no, like everything. It. Yeah, everything's it's a, a little, little too cramped. small for her. I, but well, I, I think, know, that's, I think sort of, that's, that's supposed that's to slightly term. fit her character, who's not supposed to really belong. Like you're supposed to get the sense that her character doesn't really fit in, which is why her her costume's always a mess. Like she clearly hasn't figured out what to do with her necktie at any point in the film. You know, there are always certain things that we were doing to make Suki feel a little sloppy. Um, cause that's part of the, the film's humor. And, and that was part of yeah. the comedic performance that we were trying to do with that character. Uh, a part of the joke of course is very much her character trying to fit in. Um, even though if you don't really know what's going on with her, but yeah, but if you actually look, I think Suki Waterhouse is about two inches taller than her mattress in the movie. And that's why she's always in like kind of a weird position. And I, and I think that was the kind of thing where I just got to set and I was like, Oh, we got a really small bed. Okay. Well, it looks, it looks, it looks, it looks right on camera. Like, you know, so let's just like, like, let's just, you know, we'll work around this. Yeah, no, I mean, especially her not dressing her room at all. I think it really helps with that character in general. Oh, well, she, you know, Camille, we talked about Camille. Camille wouldn't put shit up. Camille, Camille is, Camille is not there to to stay. So yeah. And Camille just also is the kind of person who I don't think decorates. Like, I, I think Camille is a very utilitarian, the character that we call Camille, I think is a very utilitarian character. So I just don't think she would decorate like period. 
like it just wouldn't interest her. She wouldn't like understand why a person would do that. Like she would like looking at a nice picture, but she wouldn't like think to herself, like I should go hang this on my wall. That's kind of why she would need, you know, a, a partner like Helena in her life if she was ever to be like a happy, healthy person, um, which is, you know, the fun of the romance. But, um, but yeah, no, Suki, there was, there was, yeah, definitely we were able, she was the easiest look to get for that room for sure. Cause it's just like a takeaway everything. And it's just her sitting in an empty shitty dorm room. But like, I didn't decorate my dorm room. Like I think, cause I was just like, I hate it here. This sucks. Like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get an apartment as soon as I can afford to. And, you know, as soon as I can get a job on campus, I'm out of here. And so like, I didn't, I think I like just had a calendar up or something. And so you know, that might just be like the ways in which, uh, you know, I, 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 that character is kind of someone that I relate to. Now with uh, a little bit of the, about the cinematography in the film, um, how much uh, like freedom would you give Kareem? And then how, like, what were your conversations like on um, how much like reference material did you give him or did you just have, give him some of the, you know, the freedom, creative freedom um, just because you worked with him before and you know how he operates. Well, I actually had never worked with Kareem before. Um, we would just been friends for a long time. Um, I'd never worked with anyone involved with seance before until at least we got to the post-production process. Um, and then Adam, uh, Adam came on the EP and, uh, and also I was able to bring on our sound team who'd done the guest and Blair Witch and near next and stuff. So once we got to post, you know, Adam, and like Matt Baker from Hanway. And I was talking to some people I'd worked with before, but during production, it was all a new team. Um, Kareem and I had just been friends, mostly from going to like film festivals and just being interested in kind of the same type of movies and just knowing a lot of the same people. Um, but uh, so we didn't like storyboard or anything. We, you know, there was no kind of money in the budget but for that, but we, but Kareem, you know, was really good about like, you know, we would shot, we shot listed everything in advance. And then, the weekend before we filmed, we'd get together and we'd go through our shot list and we'd talk through each scene and just be like, okay, do we think we can get this in this amount of time? Um, Cause we were just having to burn through so many pages a day and it was, you know, action and, and horror set pieces and stuff. Um, so we, we were always very much on the same page. You know, I, I every, I, I think it's very similar to working with, you know, uh, any DOP where like, it, it's always ultimately kind of a collaboration between, the director, DOP, and I think camera operator. Because Kareem's kind of, um, he, you know, he doesn't operate. His kind of thing is, you know, he needs to be watching the frame, which I, I think is, you know, there's very different, different DOPs have different approaches, but he's more of, in some ways, kind of a classical guy where he's really always watching the frame at monitor and he works with camera operators that he has worked with before and trust. In our case, a guy named Steve French was doing like all the steady cam shots and seance. And so, then it's like a collaboration because you're you're putting together these long shots very quickly and it's like, hey, Steve, I need you to kind of go over here, turn to the right, turn back, turn to the left, like one second, back here. You know, you're trying to find, you're basically kind of trying to choreograph, uh, you know, the blocking of the scene with the camera. Um, but that's the kind of thing Kareem and I both really enjoy. So we were just very collaborative. I, I think, you know, Kareem would often set up a shot and then I'd ask him to adjust it slightly um, or, or make some change and, you know, switch out the lens, you know, but, but generally, you know, I, he printed out a list of our lenses, uh, on Velcro, like, like a, like a kid going off to their first day of school with their like address clipped to their coat. Um, he printed out a list of our lenses with Velcro on the back of it. So I could have it on me at all times. So I could always just like, look at it and be like, okay, I think we should try this next one with the 40, but maybe the 30. 
and like let's you know and so we were always um you know we were always moving uh but yeah it, it, i think it just ended up being a natural collaboration there was no like there was no set methodology you know he, he and him and steve would kind of set up the shot and you know then i'd take a look at it and make adjustments and you know and then we then we'd roll if we were ready to go so not not a very interesting probably uh system i would say the more interesting thing is just that cream and i were able to 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 talk references very um very at, at a very minute level like we were able to say like okay this is kind of we need like the lighting from like confessions but i want like the diffused curtains from like aro tubukin and the mind of a killer and and you know and and or like from like jose laraz's symptoms or something that's the kind of reference that cream can talk to <laughs> can speak to and understand kind of minutely what you mean um whereas you'd have to like really explain that to someone else um, he also just is a visionary and and really understands how to make movies like this uh, on a production level. Um, so, you know, so that's, that's, that was really, his cream wasn't just like getting our shots. He was making sure that we were making our days and that we weren't getting behind. Um, and, and that's, that's really why we're like having someone with his experience, um, you know, <laughs> just invaluable. Ooh, your dog. That was the end of my question. So you, yeah, you got on mute now. Yeah. Yeah, my dog, uh, Jazz. Yeah. Hang on, hang on one second. That's all right. There we go. Yeah, it's, uh, three dogs in the house and there was a knock on the door. So <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um all right. So I guess we can um we'll edit this out and this will probably be uh um that's that's an easy clip. Yeah it's um yeah I think uh <laughs> you know it's 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 one of those things where it's um not too many i guess you're you're over talking about references and that's one of the more boring things i think um it's fun when you're on set obviously giving you know direction to people and even getting together and having having them watch movies uh i know some people do that as well um but being that you are a movie lover and i i don't really don't want any movie references in 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 your answer per se but being that you are very obsessed with cinema, um, how do you balance between going a little too overboard with references, reference material, and telling your cast and crew kind of what's in your head? Uh, do you do you speak for yourself in that, or do you give them a lot of reference material? No, I mean, I, I don't give them a lot of reference material. I, I, again, I think, I think part of the reasons why I sometimes struggle to come up with interesting answers to these questions is because I think the honest answers so often are that, like, it's, it's context-specific and you just go by your instinct. Um, you know, we kind of have spent a lot of time talking about, like, you know, with Tarantino and stuff. Like, I don't think Tarantino specifically thinks ever, like, oh, I'm going to set out to do this reference in this way. I just think that's the way his creative mind works. And he himself is an idiosyncratic filmmaker At, on a, on obviously a much smaller and less critically acclaimed scale. I think I myself am genuinely just kind of a weird filmmaker. 
Um, I think I make movies that entertain a certain amount of people and certain people really, really respond very passionately to them. And, I, and I'm trying to make my uh, creative instincts kind of more populist, especially on, you know, when I do bigger projects um, with Adam Wingard, like we're currently working on Thundercats and Face Off 2 um, to name to name a couple of our of the things we have in the works. And obviously with those, we're aiming those at large audiences. I mean, Face Off 2 would be like an R-rated film. So that limits its audience to a certain extent um, and also presumably its budget. But like, but, you know, that is a film that like, you know, everyone's dad should want to have on DVD if we do our job right. And, and you do have to kind of tailor that to an audience. With Seance, you know, I was making a much smaller movie and I knew because I was making a smaller movie that I had a huge safety net. Seance was and is a profitable film. Everyone who financed it is very happy with it. And so I could get pretty weird and no one would be mad at me. They just wanted to make their money back, um, which I knew, you know, if I did something remotely competent would actually be fairly easy, uh, just given our budget, what our budget was. Um, and, and again, that turned out to be fairly accurate. So, so, you know, with stuff like seance, um, you know, you can just be kind of idiosyncratic and just go with what you feel your gut is kind of telling you to do. I never really wanted, you know, I certainly never asked the cast to watch like any 90s slashers or Gialli or anything like that, because I didn't want the performances to be like in those films at all. Um, not that they have bad performances, but that wasn't what we were going for. Um, I knew the performances had to actually be uniquely tailored to my actors and the type of story I was telling. Um, so, so yeah, so I generally don't ever bring references to my casting crew. Kareem is a different example because Kareem, like myself, um, and I would actually say my passion for cinema is dwarfed by that of Kareem Hussein, who, who truly, you know, watches like everything and, and like considers it like his job to watch everything. Like if there is a unique film out there and Kareem has not seen it, that will bother him and upset him until he can, until he can order it on like the best physical media possible and watch it in the best like projection possible. Like he will not be satisfied. You know, he goes to every film festival that he can. Um, and, and I did that for a long time too. Now I'm a little more busy and, and also <laughs> film festivals for a little while because of COVID, but so we'll see what that becomes. But, um, but yeah, so with him, we could speak a language of references just as kind of a shorthand based on our friendship. Um, but with most people, I, I, I don't, I'm not able to use references like that and, and because they haven't seen the films I'm talking about. And I wouldn't necessarily want them to because usually if you share a reference with someone, they'll start thinking kind of very literally. It's almost like giving an actor too many notes. You know, you don't want to give an actor say an actor is doing a performance that isn't like 100% what you wanted for that character in that moment, you don't necessarily want to correct them after every take because all you're doing is like distracting them and making them overthink their creative choices. And it can be the same with references as a director. You know, if I, if I show someone, if I make the cast before, before, you know, before we shot seance, I could have sat the cast down and been like, okay, we're going to watch like the black belly of the tarantula followed by Valentine. And then you'll understand what I'm going for. And, you know, but they, I think it would have just like a ruined their evening uh, and, and be like confused the hell out of everyone. Because now all of a sudden everyone's yeah. thinking of how these movies look, whereas I might just be referencing some vague sense of tone and fun or mortality. And, and you know, and, and so so I, I really think you have to be very careful because I think most people tend to think very literally, you know, if you show someone a sample of something and say, this is what they're going for. You know, the next, you might show up on set and be looking at that exact thing. 
Whereas in fact, what you meant was just, again, a sense of atmosphere that's almost like intangible. That's why Adam and I tend to communicate, Adam Wingard and I tend to communicate a lot through music creatively. You know, he's really all about like, while I'm writing, finding the songs that he thinks are right for a film in advance, because that says so much more to the two of us about what the tone and energy of that project is going to be, like what type of film it's going to be, um, more so than, than kind of any other language that we could use. Um, and obviously those music choices are all over the place, usually because Adam is, you know, is I think at this point now kind of becoming, that's, I think I saw someone reference that as like one of his directorial staples on Godzilla vs. Kong was like off-kilter needle drops. And I was like, I, I, I know for a fact that Adam doesn't think of it that way. And I think that's what's key here is, is, is I think like what I'm trying to get at, like with all of this kind of Brad, is that like, I, I don't want to be imitative of weird filmmakers or innovative filmmakers. I, I think ideally, I just want to be able to do my own thing. And I think that's probably what all those people felt. Um, and so I think like maybe Adam and I just do have weird sensibilities that we think are normal. <laughs> And I think that's the best thing you can kind of maybe be as a filmmaker is, is, is you know, someone like Tarantino, um, who has his own, who clearly has his own thing, but enough people have figured out what that is, that they know they're going to consistently enjoy it. So, they'll, so he has a built-in fan base. In the case of his fan base, it's massive. And maybe Adams, you know, will get there soon because he just had, a, you know, the first real success of his career and, uh, you know, is definitely not going to let his momentum die die now but uh you know but in the case of myself you know I, I like making these movies with adam but i always want to tell original smaller stories it, it's just my personality so i i might like my ideal career might just be like some very small thing where like just a handful of people are like okay i find what simon barrett does amusing <laughs> and and that's like enough that i that my films are are profitable um, but so far that, you know, so far that's, so far that's been the case, but not in any like, you know, clear, what clear enough way that like people are beating down the door to finance my next project. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see what that ends up being, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, I think roundabout, I mean, to, to kind of piggyback off what you said and to, to kind of incorporate what I mentioned in the beginning is, um, you know, the, your movies are fun they they you do have a good time and i think that's uh, i i i say this and you know even like to relate to kareem is that i'm very much the same way it's like i am one of those people that if if someone mentions something that i haven't seen i i like deep down i get a little like insecure and upset that i haven't seen it yet so i i go out yeah me too um and and it's and it's one of those things where um you know, the whole goal for me to, to watch a movie and my average rating on like Letterboxd and stuff is 2.5 because I do think most movies are okay. You know, See, I think my average rating would be like 0.5 because <laughs> I think most movies are, I, because I, I think most movies are fucking like insulting garbage and certainly most movies that I choose to watch. Um, and, 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 and I do, but I mean, I, I've seen most of the movies this year and I, I think like the only, I mean, I hated almost every film that came out this year. You know, I liked Godzilla versus Kong. I liked uh, bad trip. Uh, yeah. And then everything else probably made me mad. You know, I, I don't know. I can't, I'm blanking. So, you know, so, so I, I, if I had a letterbox, I would just come across like a total curmudgeon, 
but that is again like where kind of my creative spirit comes from is I, I do have a lot of negativity i am hard on my own work i don't think it, it's a benefit to filmmakers or artists to be kind of part of you know these kind of groups where everyone just pats each other on the shoulder and you know like like your critics critics give their friends positive reviews and stuff like i i just don't think like and i don't see a lot of that happening i'm not calling out like anything in particular but you know i mean everyone is is realistic about the fact that you know it, it does kind of happen and and you know i think that's like the worst thing you can do to someone in a way um you know on the other hand negative criticism is a tough thing for someone to receive after they've been working on something for years and years so you do have to be careful you can't just be like totally honest with people you have to have some you know social decorum when giving people notes but i but you know i really hope that people kind of continue to be harsh and negative of my work I, i'd much rather get a negative review from that's an honest one you know than 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 have someone like give me a pass because they they like me or they feel sorry for me or whatever so, you know, so I, I do think like there can be a lot of positivity and negativity. I do think the the process of artistic growth is is one of like confidence, but also being really harsh on all your past work and always looking at it and saying, you know, this could have been better, you know, like like this is where I messed up, you know, and 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 what would I do differently next time? You know, as soon as you stop doing that, you you should really stop working. As soon as you're like, I'm great and like there's really no way for me to improve. You should retire or kill yourself um, because you're kind of done. So, um, you know, so ideally I, I feel like negative, that kind of negativity is what inspires me. You know, I feel like I'm kind of more excited uh, by hating things than liking them. Um, and maybe that's just my personality, but if I see a great movie, you know, say like, say like Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor or uh, Relic last year, uh, Natalie Erica James's Relic were probably my two favorite films from 2020. But it's like, I wouldn't, like, I don't know how to do something imitative of those films specifically. They just did a very unique thing that I happen to really like. Yeah. Um, I'm much more capable of looking at a movie that I think is total garbage <laughs> and hate on like every level. And, and, but my mind kind of starts gestating on what I think a different or better version of, of something that movie did might be. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I kind of come from that too, because there's so, sometimes where I'll watch a movie and then think, wow, <laughs> this would have been so much better if they kind of went this direction. And then it's like, oh, and then you start just almost like creatively making up your own movie in your head based off of what that, and then that draws inspiration from that idea. And then you honestly, sometimes you can create your own thing that's not even related to that movie based off <laughs> negative inspiration. Um, I, I literally think that's like what Tarantino does. Like, I think like he watched like, I don't know, like, like like drum you know the mandingo sequel and, and like like somehow that led his brain to start thinking about django unchained you know like is there a good version of this kind of like yeah. pulpy pulpy you know political western like you know and i i literally think that seems to be how his brain works is he just digests like a bunch of bad movies of a certain type and then starts to conceive of like the a-list version <laughs> that stars you know Leonardo DiCaprio or whatever um, you know, and I think that's cool. And I think a lot of people are that way. I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm obviously different in, in, you know, in the way that I try to do things. I'm not as interested in doing kind of homages or, or specific references, but at the same time, you know, with, with seance in particular, that movie clearly is a type of film. Uh, but that kind of came from that phase of, of, 
you know, I wrote that kind of right after we finished The Guest. And I was still kind of very much in that John Hughes model of trying to apply these John Hughes narratives to certain types of horror genres, like we'd done with Your Next and The Guest, uh, Your Next being Home Alone and the, and the Guest obviously being Uncle Buck. Um, so so I, I was still trying to do that specific kind of mysterious stranger slasher John Hughes thing. And that is comes from that comes from a referential place. I think ideally my next few films, you know, pr- won't prompt these kinds of kind of front conversations if things go well. But at the end of the day, I think people are also starting to get that I watched so many movies. And, and now that I'm working, uh, you know, with like with companies like Vinegar Syndrome and yourself to do things like, you know, the Winter Beast extras, I think people are really getting now that like, oh, this guy um, is a film scholar of a certain type. He just doesn't know anything about cinema. And, uh, and that does actually sum it up. Um, so, so, you know, so I, I, you know, these questions will continue to come up, but, but seance is, seance is a tricky one because, you know, I did so clearly set it up to be a reference to something, but at, you know, at the end of the day, you can only talk about like the house on sorority row or phenomena so many times, because if you look at those films, it's not like I'm trying to recreate them in any way. They just are clearly the creative DNA that led me to this one thing. And, you know, I could have called, you know, seance, like, you know, I don't know, like the, the, you know, the butterfly teardrop on a, on a crow's wing, you know, butterfly teardrop of blood on the flying crow's wing and, you know, tried to give it some like esoteric Gialli title and, you know, given it like that title font and, and asked sicker man to do, you know, a Morricone score. Um, but you just sort of had the ersatz version of the better thing, you know, like why, why would you watch that when phenomena and the house on Sorero exist to me is the question I was asked to ask myself. I know why I want to watch Django Unchained, despite the fact that Mandingo exists, you know, it, it, they're different movies. <laughs> like, like, yeah. so, so, but, but if you're doing something so specific, often I'm like, well, why would I watch this new version of this old thing when I could just watch the good old thing? Why would I watch an imitation of a John Carpenter movie when I can watch John Carpenter's movies in 4k or playing at a theater near me, you know, uh, you have to have a good answer, especially if the movies you're referencing are like The Shining. Why would I watch your movie if I could just watch The Shining? So with Seance, it's like you you do want to give people something new always. I, I just feel like that's the real goal. Um, but you know, I, I think I got a little unlucky with Seance in that like it's one of those movies where like the references in it seem to be enjoyed by a group of people that are that are maybe not. Uh, as amenable with like the story and plot and, you know, the story and plot are maybe more enjoyable to people who are like completely oblivious to, you know, my, my esoteric references to urban legends, final cut, or I still know what you did last summer. And, you know, all of those perspectives are totally valid, but at the end of the day, I just thought the world needed one more like boarding school slasher. So I set up to make one. And that's, that's, that's the fun of it is as long as your goals are that, then you kind of can't fail. Um, and, And I think probably that's like, you know, anyone who still has a love for cinema like Tarantino or, you know, or, or, you know, any other kind of filmmaker who works in that referential space, you know, I assume that's where they're really going for is like, you know, they're just like, I just want to see this thing exist. Uh, and Seance is the film that I wanted to make. And, and uh, that's, that's it. That like, I'm uh, like, the goal now is just to get to be able to do another one. Perfect. Well, I think we'll end on that note. Um, but yeah, it's uh, Seance is available 
to stream uh to or to rent on uh voodoo and then when does it uh well like in itunes probably i don't really do streaming <laughs> that much i did rent it off of yeah you're you're actually like fucking terrible at this do you want me to just do this like that <laughs> was like that was like on? that was incoherent <laughs> that was incoherent uh okay so seance uh is not available on streaming yet uh, it is available to rent and buy on all the VOD digital platforms, including, uh, yes, Voodoo and iTunes, uh, and I'm sure uh, yeah, you know, Amazon, Alamo On Demand. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure some of them are ethical. Um, <laughs> maybe they, maybe we go with Alamo. Um, and uh, but uh, but yeah, but all of them are good, and I recorded separate extras for them because I do enjoy the kind of home media buying. It will be out on Blu-ray. Uh, it will be out on DVD. I think it'll definitely be out on Blu-ray um, with with slightly more extras, and it will be out on streaming on Shutter. But uh, you can currently rent and buy it in all the normal places. And I don't know when we're coming out on streaming, so so don't ask me. But I suspect it'll be a couple more months. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, don't tell me you're leaving. The party's just begun. 